Welcome, welcome, welcome to another fabulous episode of My Orgasmic Life. I'm your hostess with the mostest, Gaia Morissette. And today I'm with Bobby, and I can never pronounce her, her last name properly, so I'll let her do that. Um, <laughs> anyways, she's writing a fantastic book, and um, she asked if she could interview me, and I said, absolutely. And, you know, one of our episodes, we, we both of us disclosed about our first experiences, our first sexual experiences. And so today we're going to dive into... Uh, so some content warning is that we're going to dive into some of my trauma, some of my sexual interference, and how that has affected who I became as a sexual being. So I'm going to hand over the reins. I'm letting go of control to Bobby and let her guide this whole interview. So thanks. Thanks, Bobby, for being on the show. Thank you, Gaia. And uh it- We'll just have to practice the bedotchka, bedotchka, bedotchka. Once you get it, you can't stop saying. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of those last names I get a lot of like people like, ooh, yeah, once I get it, I like want to say it all the time. (laughs) Um, But thank you, uh, Gaia, for surrendering to this moment. I think this is going to be a really um, important part of the book. So just super quick uh, for the listeners, the book, the working title right now is uh, you I cut am, out for, hold on, you cut out for a second. Can you say it again? Yeah, stupid headphones. Um, yeah, I think this is a really important uh, conversation. And just to give your uh, audience some context, this is uh, for the book, my second book that I'm writing. Uh, the working title is The First Time and uh, exploring early um, and first time sexual experiences and how those affect um, people's viewpoint um, or perspective, identity, future sexual experiences, et cetera, and then also into other parts um, of their lives. And so um, I think a guy and I are going to take a step back um, even further past the first um, sexual experiences that, that we've had, uh, not Guy and I together, um, but individually. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> um, and because there are actual, um, you know, non-intercourse, non-relationship types of experiences that some of us have. Um, and a guy has, has coined a really great term about, um, you know, being um, interfered with. Um, yes. So interfered sexual experiences. So um, let's talk about those. So um, Gaia, maybe you can just go right back to the first time that one of those types of things happened and describe in as much detail that you're comfortable with and then let's talk about the impact um, of those okay so let's define sexual interference so our audience kind of can understand when I say that what that means in relation to the difference between sexual interference worth it versus the word sexual trauma worth versus rape versus versus uh, abuse so sexual interference is typically where Um, you end up being exposed to adult sexuality in a way that is unhealthy or beyond pushing you beyond your natural sexual evolution or, you know, age appropriate. So things like walking in on somebody, you know, watching, walking in on your parents having sex or, you know, walking in on, you know, some adult masturbating and watching porn and then no actual conversation about framing all of that 
or, you know, somebody being sexual and, you know, jacking off in the forest where you like, so it's like you're, you're, it's, it's like being exposed to sexuality that isn't age appropriate or consensual in essence for the individual. So I would say for me, um, I had a lot of sexual trauma, which is like direct impact on me and rape and abuse. And my sexual interference was, seemed very mild in comparison to any of those very extreme pieces. Um, so, however, that being said, because I was already being interfered with, interfered with my own development um, directly um, through being violated, being raped, being played with um, and exposed to these things, what ended up happening is it distorted what healthy sexual development looks like for me. And where, go ahead, you wanna ask a question? Well, I, yeah, no, finish your thought. And then I'm, I'm just going to ask afterwards. Yeah. I think we need to start maybe giving some examples, whether they're specific to you or, or, um, examples from the world of really the differences between these things. Okay. So, um, okay. So ask me, so which one do you, would you like me to go into specifically? Like it, when you were talking about differentiating between sexual interference and then the sexual exposure and interfering in my development is there, are those the two things that you yeah, want I mean, me it's, to it? it's a spectrum right so yeah. it's it's probably a little bit different for each person i i think i think the audience is clear on the definition of rape so i don't think we need to talk too much about that no <clears throat> um as far as sexual abuse sexual trauma the difference is there and then as you go along the spectrum you know when when does one define it as interference versus trauma um, so I would say, okay, so sexual, sexual abuse is somebody actually sexually uh, violating somebody. So it's very much similar to rape, but typically it's used more when it's a child situation. And typically rape seems to be more of a conversation that happens when somebody is an adolescent or an adult when there's not consent. So there's a different dynamic that's at play when there's an mm. adult versus a child dynamic versus a similar age bracket. Right. Um, so often rape is associated <laughs> often with like you're the, around the same age, there's, that's what's happening and sexual, sexual abuse is usually typically, there's a huge gap in age like difference. age difference. Okay. Um, sexual trauma is any sexual experience that has, so trauma in itself is any experience that you experience that keeps you stuck in that moment. So it creates a, almost like a little a picture of the experience and that picture, the smells, the sound, the taste, the touch, all of those things are imprinted into your being and you cannot, it's like you're in a trauma loop, like you can't get loop. out of the trauma loop because it's like it happened. And that, <laughs> that could happen to anybody in different levels. So like, for example, so let's, let's take some examples of how things affect us individually. So because I experienced so much sexual abuse, 
where there was firsthand, you know, family members and satanic ritual cult and like horrendous, horrendous sexual experiences, not with consent, not pleasant, not enjoyable, not any of those things. So when I was walking home one day, so here's a sexual interference experience that somebody else, that could have been a sexual trauma experience for. I was walking home one day with a girlfriend of mine and we, I guess, I, how old were we? We were about 11, 10, 11 years old. And we're walking and we're going down the stairs um, of where I live. There was like these giant hills. And so there was these hills that you would walk down the forest in um, to get to places in town. And so we were walking down the hill um, in, on these stairs and there was a guy whacking off in the forest with a t-shirt over his head. And I started laughing hysterically because I thought that was the funniest and most ridiculous thing I'd ever seen. Now, my girlfriend, who had never been abused, had never been traumatized sexually before, she was devastated and it was devastating and a violation and her safety was challenged and all these things. And so that's an example of a sexual experience that you're exposed to and depending on what your experiences have been up to this point will be how you internalize it like how does it affect who you are yeah and how did um <clears throat> so do you do you feel like you had a, a handful of those just randomly or it was because you were um sort of in that abuse environment that those also just sort of showed up as well well, because I was surrounded with like real monsters, like hardcore monsters where I don't know if I'm going to sleep and somebody's going to come into my room and violate me, rape me, abuse me, make me do things. Um, those sort of more, they, those just seem subtle. Like they just seemed like it wasn't really a big deal. Like, you know, going to, a, you know, like it just, as sad as that is, it didn't, like it didn't affect me. Those, those little things didn't actually really affect me because they were so minor and mild in comparison to what I was living on a regular basis of danger factor. Right. So I would say that things like, um, you know, going over to the neighbor's house. So here's another experience where if I hadn't had the background of the trauma that I had, this would have been horrendous. And it still is horrendous. Like it, it was still horrendous, only it didn't register on my rector, like on my scale of safety danger. It didn't even phase me. It was so, it happened. It was just so minor in comparison to everything else. So I remember going over that we had a neighbor in, the, this na in our neighborhood and he was an old man and he would invite us all over for cookies. And, and so we would come over for cookies and, um, you know, he'd have you sit on his lap to give you the cookies and you could feel him having a boner while you were sitting on his lap. And that's not cool. Like, like, like that's not okay on so many no. levels. That's, I mean, this yeah. is the fear of all parents, right? It's why you don't want to let your kids out of the house because <laughs> this happens. Yes. And it didn't even register is that that was not okay because I was surrounded with so many other extreme inappropriate behaviors of things that it was just like, oh, that's just what old men do. 
Like that was, I remember thinking that like, like I remember my other friends being talking about it and being like, I don't think we should go over there for cookies anymore. <laughs> like I don't, that wasn't very nice. Like I don't, I feel weird about that. Like something was wrong about that. And I was like, I remember saying to them, but that's just what old men do. Like that was my norm. Yeah. And at least you were getting cookies out of the deal, right? And I was getting right. cookies out of the deal. So <laughs> it's like, whatever. Yeah. Wow. It's like, I remember, you know, for me, and we already talked about this, you know, I had early exposure to uh, porn magazines and, and porn movies. And I still, to this day, don't feel traumatized by it, but it definitely um, interfered. Like it affected how I looked at sexuality. It, it affected how I looked at my own body. It affected my, you know, later on in life, like porn was just, it didn't mean anything to me. It's like, well, yeah, every, every parent has a box of porn or something. Like it was really, yeah, it just, it instantly normalized it. Um, and, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm, but I, I never really saw it as I didn't feel negatively affected and, and I still don't. Um, but it still interfered. Like it would be interesting to know how, how, you know, in my teenage years, if I had zero exposure. So I, I know that, you know, our, the story that we talked about before, you had a very beautiful, you know, first time positive sexual experience. Um, yeah. and, and there just seems to be this, um, this crevasse between how, how did you manage to go from the sexual trauma to such a beautiful sexual experience? So before we get into that, I think what I do want to share and talk about is that all the kids in the neighborhoods, I want to talk about all the overactive sexual. So part of that interference, like being exposed sexually, whether that's to porn, to uh, adult sexuality, to rape, to your own, you know, actual violation of your own stuff where sex is brought in too early and it's not by choice. Mm -hmm. What I saw, what I participated in and what I saw happening all the time is that the over sexual play in the neighborhood. So there's like, so how do we define what is healthy? Like, I'll show you mine, you show me yours. Yeah, because there was sexual, sexual, going on. Sexual development versus, um, you know, people playing out actually having sex with each other. And so that was the thing is like the kids in the neighborhood, I remember the kids in the neighborhood who obviously wasn't exposed to the things that I had been exposed to or some of the other kids that exposed to when we all started like taking off our clothes to show each other our parts, they were like, okay, so here's my parts. And I'm curious about seeing your parts, but there was no actual like sexuality in it. It was just a curiosity piece of like seeing each other's parts, but all the kids who had had some kind of sexual interference, they're like, okay, let's play doctor. So there was like, let's play doctor. Let's put things in the, the whole places in the yep. places, um, you know, let's feel each other up. Let's have, let's feel pleasure. Uh, that's sexual pleasure. Let's pretend we're, let's act out, you know, somebody I remember coming across, you know, 
porn mags, you know? And so it'd be like, okay, let's act out what we see in the porn mags, you know? Like that was the thing. Like it was like this. That was the thing. That was the thing that you were doing. But that's because we'd all been exposed in some capacity to over-sexualization without the framework, proper framework with it, either consensually or non-consensually and versus the natural evolution of sexual sexuality. Right. But so, but let's fast forward for for a moment. We're sexual beings now, you know, it's not that, not that it's not the same as before because everything's on the computer now. Right. So there's a bit of a security factor there, but I don't think it was all that unusual that people had porn mags in their house um, and that you might accidentally run in. Not that, you know, they're doing it on the kitchen table during dinner. You run into them. You discover them accidentally. Da, da, da. So it's, you know, there's, but it there's depends on what the- age. I think this is the key. It depends on what age you develop that you find the porn mags. So like, in your own pleasure seeking development of like, okay, so I rub things and it feels good. And so I'm rubbing myself on things, you know, like, you know, you'll hear lots of stories about, you know, vagina owners finding out when they can rub themselves up against the couch, it feels really good. And it's really pleasurable. And that's, that's, that's without interference. That's just natural. That's just, you know, uh, you know, penis owners find their penis and they're constantly putting their hands down their pants in the most inappropriate place and the most inappropriate time because it just feels good. That's, that's natural. So, but if you were to find porn and it's also not just the having the porn or finding the porn, it's the, what context does that porn provide for you? So if it's curiosity or if a parent says, okay, so you found the porn, let's have a conversation. Let's put it into a framework. There's no interference that has happened in there, but it's when a child finds, and especially nowadays, because we're not talking about just, we're not just talking about um, pictures. We're talking about like videos. You can find on Google. Anything you find on Google have access to. And if you don't understand why somebody's screaming, you can interpret that data as a violation. Like somebody is not consensual. They don't know what's happening. Why are you hurting each other? Like all of those pieces, which then imprints our belief systems around sexuality. So it's all about, it's not that finding these things or having these experiences early in life basically means that you're fucked for the rest of your life and that you're not going to be able to have great sex or or have a great sexual relationship with yourself and the world or a healthy sexual relationship. It does just mean that the, the way that you get there may look different. So to answer, which to answer your question, how did I get from all of this violation, all of this interference, um, inappropriately playing doctor, very inappropriately playing doctor, putting things in all sorts of people's holes and having things put in my holes, all of those things to this beautiful first experience that we talked about where I was consensual. It was my consensual conscious choosing to share intercourse with somebody. That came from a couple different places for me. One Um, I didn't remember all of my trauma, so that made it easy. So there was like a part of me um, that was unaffected 
by all of the, the horror that I had gone through. So that's one piece of, of the puzzle um, because I didn't remember my trauma till I was 17 and I'd already started to have wonderful sexual experiences before I actually remembered that I was abused. Okay. So I think that has a lot to do with why yeah. I was able to have those first, that, those, that first experience. The other is that I lived in a very unique household where one of the things um, that was in our household was that pleasure is your right. So there was this whole, so, so outside of the, the safety of my home where I was being violated, um, but in my home, your body's your body, you're allowed to explore your body. Conversations about masturbation happened in my household. You, there's nothing wrong with having uh, pleasure. You need to find out what your pleasure points are before you get into a relationship because how are you going to show them what you like? Um, so there was all this like really positive mm -hmm. sexual education that I grew up in my household with. And one of the rules was, my, and I remember so clearly my mother saying, you don't have to wait to make, have, you don't have to wait to get married, to have sex, but you do want to wait until you love somebody. Because once you share that intimacy with somebody, it's a new layer of intimacy that you can never take back. I remember really being like, oh, okay. So I don't have to wait. I don't have to wait until I get married. But I do have to wait until it's somebody that I love. Which and, is pretty good advice. Which is pretty good advice, right? Yeah. Um, now, I gave my siblings much better advice, but that was pretty good advice for, yeah. you know. Given that, the time. Given the time, right? Yeah. It was quite radical advice, giving the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so I remember before I actually had intercourse with my first boyfriend that I was in love with, I had done a lot of exploration. I had done lots of hand jobs in the forest, that same forest where that guy was whacking up <laughs> while I was walking down the stairs. Um, you know, I had had oral sex. I had had all these ex sexual experiences that were ex like, again, over-sexualized. So therefore expressing sexually, this is what's happening. But I never would have intercourse because in my mind, I'm like, I don't love this person. So I can't have intercourse. We can fool around. We can do all of this like other over-sexualization. You can sexualize me like, you know, you, all the things, but we can't have intercourse because I don't love you. And so I remember. This pre, this is like teen, preteen. Yeah, like I'm 14. Yeah. yeah. So I'm like 14, 14 years old. So from the age of 12 to 14. But even like that, that whole stage, again, I was over-sexualized because of the exposure that I had. And the only reason that I probably didn't lose my virginity and become promiscuous and, you know, without orgasms and without all that kind of stuff, the only reason that didn't, wasn't my, my story as it's been so many other people's stories is because of this two factors. One, I didn't remember my trauma. And two, my mother was all about sexual education and empowerment of my pleasure. Like each one of us has a right to have 
an orgasm and you need to know how to do that. So you got to teach somebody else how to do that. So that whole sexual education and empowerment piece prevented me from doing this se- the sequence that typically yeah. happens when you have the early exposure that I did. Yeah, I mean, I would say that I I wouldn't I didn't have sexual trauma, but I definitely had all of those early experiences, you know, like everybody was showing me their their penises when I was like young. I mean, we were talking like five, six years old, you know, we yeah. were acting out, playing doctor, all sorts of, you know, things and kiss girls kissing girls and strip poker and all sorts of stuff. You know, we messed around for for years, uh, different combinations of different people. Um, no, 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 like abuse or trauma, just, you know, curiosity and playing around. And I'm not sure that I would agree a hundred percent that there was no sexuality involved. I think that there, there was like, that's where the curiosity comes from. It's just, it didn't go beyond that because nobody really knew like what to do. What is this? What, why, why am I doing this? I'm curious that, but nobody questioned why am I curious? Um, but it definitely, but here's the thing. If somebody who had been traumatized and already been exposed to sexuality, they would have known what to do and they would have directed the group into that space. I see. I see. Yes. I mean, that makes sense, right? It's you kind of, you do what you know. Yeah. 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 And, and well, I'm curious then, do you think that there's, I mean, I have my own opinions on this, but which I'll say after, but do you think that there's even a power dynamic at that age? I think there's a power dynamic at every age. You have people who are alphas and you have people who are uh, followers. Um, so you got leaders and followers all the time in every interaction at every age. And yeah. so it does it like... So whoever happens to be the alpha is the one who's going to get the group dynamic to do whatever the alpha wants them to do. Mm -hmm. And the people who are the followers, they are drawn to the alpha because they want, so there's, so that power dynamic is at play from the moment we are born. And I agree. What role we pick and what role we play, whether we are in the leadership or the follower following plays has a lot to do with the dynamics that we saw growing up and how people got their needs met and how people got love and how people got all these things. And then we basically learn to mimic those behavioral traits. And then that's who we become. Often who we are in the family dynamic is who we become in a group dynamic. And so therefore, but that can ebb and flow like that power dynamic can change depending on the circumstances, the people and what your needs are. So in that case, then do you, do you think that, you know, during that period, is anybody really to blame? Like, I mean, uh, amongst the kids, um, I don't think anybody's to blame amongst the kids ever. Like, I think when everything is happening, (laughs) everything is happening and everybody's in the same age bracket, it's, it, for some, it might be more of a violation and that actually could have anchored into actual trauma yeah. and there's a trauma loop and that can affect a whole bunch of things. And I don't yeah. want to disagree, like, I don't want to devalue how that experience happened, but as far as actual blame on that situation, um, I think that 
when everybody's the same age, under a certain age, you know, once we become yeah. an adult or a pre-pudescent, you know, we once become teenagers and a beyond, then we're 13, 13, 14, 14, 14 then. then then there's yeah. more responsibility that we all need to take around behaviors. Yeah. But mm-hmm. under that age, I really think that it's kids are just moving with what they've known and what they've been exposed to. So if anybody's mm-hmm. to blame for any overt sort of behaviors that might be harmful, it would be wherever that kid learned that from. So let's say, so it's, it's my estimation and you can, you can validate this or not um, based on your knowledge. I think a lot of kids go through this. Yes. There's something about a natural evolution of curiosity around those things. I think it's a matter of degree uh, to which you um, um, participate, I guess. But would you say if, have you met or let's hypothesize if there's a, a, a child who went, you know, all the way up to teenage years and never had, had zero, zero exposure to anything, never saw a naked body, never talked about it, never anything at all, nothing at all. Do you think that that would result in more positive um, sexual experience in the future? or not because I feel like I feel like my early exposures in many ways helped I I feel like when I hear these women who get into their 30s and they've never orgasmed I'm like how and I can only imagine it was because there's some kind of lack of exposure but so is it because of lack of exposure or is it because of the fear so there's a difference between there's natural exposure like you, like, like I said, everybody's going around once they find their genitals rubbing things like they're rubbing their genitals. It feels good. Like it's a human thing. It feels good. Why would I do it? There's no, we have no preconceived idea of judgment that sex is good or sex is bad or pleasure is good or pleasure is bad. And we have no shame. Like there's no shame about it. So we evolve naturally, even with sexual our own sexual experiences without necessarily seeing or being exposed to other sexual experiences, we still have our own internal journey of pleasure and our bodies. If that is like, and so I think, I don't know if it makes it better or worse, but if that's the case, then it really doesn't matter. It's when we have had a devoid and we've been told that sex and pleasure is dirty and wrong and bad and shameful. And so therefore we've avoided all sexual possibilities and pleasure possibilities. Then that's where the problem is. And again, the problem lies in not whether it's about your exposure or not, it's about what are the messages around pleasure that will affect who you become as a sexual being. So I think that's more of the influence in that piece is 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 the what are the messages about pleasure and whether you're allowed to have it and whether you're so like I do a lot of work with people who you know haven't had orgasms and all sorts of different degrees of of trauma and all sorts of stuff and typically when I see women who've never had an orgasm it's because of trauma and overexposure oh to sexuality 
that typically is one of the reasons why they haven't had an orgasm. There's a very small percentage of population that haven't had an orgasm because they haven't discovered it. But even then, if they haven't touched themselves to find an orgasm at this point, it's because they were very clearly told that pleasure is bad and dirty and wrong and you should be ashamed and never touch that part. So I suspect whether they remember or not, they had those early messages, whether somebody walked in when they were in the bath and they were like having their enjoying their bathing of their genitals a little too much, or, you know, they're rubbing up against the, the arm of the, you know, of the chair or whatever, that they got that message very clearly that it wasn't okay to have orgasms and pleasure. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. So um, just going back to more examples, maybe we could imagine or discuss more examples of uh, sexual interference, because I, I still think that that's probably a little bit vague for some people, not quite sure what, what okay. all of those could be and what, what, how those, how one could think back on that from a positive point of view. Like, how can we, how can we make sense of that and how can we take those and reflect on that in a way that that we can use in some kind of practice sense. Okay, so I think there's a difference between, so maybe we should identify it differently. So sexual interference means that it interfered in who you were going to be naturally sexually. So overexposure to stuff, exposure to sex, like we talked about walking in on your parents, seeing a porn movie that you're like, what the fuck is that? Uh, or even on a positive note, being like, ooh, so now your framework of what your desires have sped up to where the rest of your peers haven't sped up. Like you've been exposed to sexuality beyond where you naturally would have evolved to. So like our next, so our natural evolution, maybe we talk about our natural evolution and then anything beyond that basically drops into an interference, whether that was a good interference or a negative interference, it doesn't really matter. It's just, I think it's really just accepting that there's diversity throughout this process, right? So, mm -hmm. so like, for example, being able to be overexposed to uh, sexual activity allowed me to give pleasure and, you know, pleasure to my partners at an early age because I had already learned how to do that because of being violated. So I already had a skill set that no right. one else in my age bracket had because of the experiences that I had. And at the time, did that empower you? You're like, I know what I'm doing. Well, I didn't know that you, I didn't know that see, it was normal for me. So I didn't know that other people didn't know what they were doing. Okay. All right. So like, I didn't know that what was happening wasn't normal. Like I didn't realize that. I mean, that's, that's really, when we look back on our lives, all of us, n most of us don't have any clue that what is happening is not normal <laughs> or is it the norm or that what we're feeling? Cause that's the thing is that we're, we're so like, this is my experience. So this must be everybody's experience. It's not until we get older and we start finding out that, Oh, that's, 
that wasn't your experience? What do you mean? That's not how that happened in your house? What do you mean? I mean, uh, I, I'm going to challenge you on that uh, a little bit because I, I remember at a very young age, five, six years old, knowing, not knowing, I had a feeling there's something wrong here. There's something I shouldn't be doing this. You know, these, these say these, these porn magazines, they're, they're hidden. I, I, I know there's a, a porn video and I'm going to put it in the VHS. And I know that if I get caught, I know I'm going to get in trouble because I know I'm not supposed to be looking at this. You know, when you first start masturbating, you feel like I'm not sure that I should be doing this. But that's because that in your house was the norm. My house wasn't that. That was not the norm. So in my household, masturbation was an okay approved activity as long as you did it in your bedroom. So there, were, there was no part of me that if I was masturbating that I was doing something wrong, as long as it was in my bedroom, we were good. So I think it still comes down to that you knew you were doing something wrong because in your household, what you would, your norm of programming, that it was hidden for a reason. It was yeah. something that you're not allowed to do. You were already given those messages because that was the norm of your environment. Yeah. So I think that's the, that's the piece, right? Is that still, we still have to come back to that reality that whatever your norm was, whether it's the messaging, the belief systems, the stuff is what you think is normal. So like walking around naked, for example, because I, I do that at my house because I want my kids to feel like no shame for their bodies. Yeah. Um, but I guess in a different type of environment, if that is sexualized, then that might send a different message, right? Exactly. So if, if no one walks naked, like nudity, so like no one in the household is naked ever. And the only time you see naked people, if they're actually in the middle of whacking off or having an orgasm or fucking, like having sex, you see your parents having sex and they're naked for the first time. And that's the only time you've ever seen your parents naked. Then all mm -hmm. of a sudden, being exposed to being naked, nakedness could be then imprinted as a traumatic experience or an interference experience. Like the, the experience of the exposure, how we interpret it depends on who we are and what our framework is. Like, does that make sense? So like, yeah, like, yeah. For like, even though my parents didn't, uh, they, I'm not telling my kids, well, that's not true, but I am a little bit, but if I didn't actually just say the words, I just sort of leading by example, as opposed to, so you're still sending a message, even though it's not verbal. Yeah. But you're sending the message that being naked is fine. Yeah. By doing it and doing it since they were a child, you've sent the message that the naked is fine. You in another household, somebody walking in on the bathroom when somebody's getting out of the shower and they scream and grab a towel and wrap themselves up, which is also a very normal reaction in many households, um, sends a message that you can't see people naked, that something is wrong if you see people naked. There's something that you have to hide if you're naked. Like it's a private yeah. thing. I don't know why it's a private thing. No one's talked about why it's a private thing, but it clearly is a thing that my mother screamed when I walked into the bathroom while she came out of the shower. And then she yelled at me to get out. And so it sent a very clear message that being naked is not, 
is not a normal thing. See, I, so this is the perfect example where it's really, it's not like intentional. It's not abusive. It was just a normal, her human reaction based on her historical experiences. And now, you know, you're transmitting that message. So that is, that is a, a sexual interruption or interference um, around the body, around around the body, body, right. And around the, the ability to feel comfortable in your body. And when we drop into being able to be comfortable in our body in relation to who we are as a sexual being and being able to share sexuality with others, um, our own body stuff is an important piece of it. So it's a foundational belief system that was created in a moment, whether it was a tent or not, that was created. And so that person, so your kids that see you walking around naked all the time are, are have probably, as they grow up, when they are in a sexual experience, they're going to drop their drawers, they're going to get naked. They're not going to have a thing about like, okay, you got to turn off the lights and you can't see me naked. Like it's because it's, the naked body isn't something that you need to be ashamed of or is something that's just like sexual. It's just, it's just the naked body is either, yeah. it's neither here or nowhere. It just is the thing. So your kids, as they grow up in their development, so now where does that development and that belief system come into alignment and cause either really positive experiences or negative experiences? So, so you take two kids, okay? We're gonna do a little thought experiment. So we got your kids who is totally comfortable with the human body. And we have another kid that grew up in a household where no one ever saw anybody naked. Anybody saw each other naked. They scream, they slam the doors. Like, it's just like, it's not a thing. You don't see each other naked. So let's fast forward. Kids grow up and now they're going to go on a date. And they're going to try to have a sexual experience. So your kid's going to be like, let's turn on the lights. And they've just dropped their clothes. Like, it's not a thing. probably even before they got to the kissing they're naked I feel like there are some parents who are like I would prefer that that is not the way <laughs> but I disagree I think it's, it's good. good it is good right and then yeah. the kid who grew up with the ah is now in this place of we got to turn off the lights and I you can't see me and I have body image issues because uh, I've been told that my body is like dirty in some way. So I can't let you see it. So we have to do it in the dark. And the person who's like, what are you talking about? Who's like, I want to see you and I want to explore you. So now you have now a new trauma potential or conflict because conflict can create trauma depending on how it's navigated and handled can then be a thing. So now the kid who is like super open about their body about because nudists being a nudist in your household is not a big deal. And the kid who grew up where that was a lot of shame. So now they're mirroring what their beliefs are and are now saying you're wrong and something's wrong with you. And the other person's like, you're a freak and a weirdo. Why are you naked? Like you need to put your clothes back on. Like I can't see you naked. And so now it creates this other layer of like, but that was normal. Why is this a problem? So conflict as we date. So this is where that evolution comes in as our experiences. And then we start dating. There's a whole new layer of the things that we're coming in with that can cause 
trauma, can cause shame, can cause judgment, which then all of a sudden internalizes stuff that were super easy and open before. So, you know, it's really important. So the moral of that story for all of my audience listening is that make sure that you teach your kids to find like-minded to explore with <laughs> so they don't have those experiences. Yeah, I was just about to circle around to that. It's It feels like, I mean, I was, the book itself is, is meant for 25 to 45, um, you know, women mostly who are struggling with, you know, is what I am normal? Mm-hmm. Are other people going through what I'm going through? How did I get here type of things, right? Just to, just to give people a, a concept that these early experiences really do matter. And I, I feel like people don't, don't think about it too much. Like they really, unless it's, it's, it feels like if someone has a traumatic experience when they're young, that definitely gets obviously either remembered or re-remembered later, or the impact is obvious, but all the rest of it seems to just kind of like, meh. And I, I disagree with this model. I, I really do think that all of these um, early experiences and we all have them. We all have them. I would love to hear from someone who had nothing up until say 15 or 20. And if that is the case, please give me, send me a message so that we can talk because I would, I would think that's important to hear about. Um, But I would say that's a rare case. Maybe it's a cultural thing. I don't know about other cultures. Well, I think it's also about how, again, it's that piece about how is the message around pleasure and sex normalized? or fear-based. And so it's less about necessarily the experiences and it's more about our interpretation of those experiences based on what we were told or taught or shown is acceptable or not acceptable. Um, So parents and teens should be reading this book. Yes. Yes, because that's really, it's about, that's the piece of it, is that it's about how do we interpret the information? Because like I said, I used the example. One, so for, you know, here's a guy whacking off in the forest. I think it's hilarious. It didn't affect me as far as I'm concerned. I laughed so hard, I almost fell down the stairs. Like, I thought it was so funny. Like, what a weirdo. Like, I just thought it was my thought. What a weirdo. Why the did, shirt on his head. I'm like, like, what's with the shirt on your head? Like, what are you doing, right? <laughs> yeah. And my friend who had never been exposed in any capacity to anything that was like this was mortified and traumatized on on a level that I suspect, like, if I were to look her up, I probably, we would probably see that she has all sorts of issues with men and penises and somebody sending her a penis picture and like all of those things, it would have affected her on those layers. Yeah, definitely. So it's the same experience happened to both of us. But because of our framework, it affected us differently. I think that's key. I think that's really key because sometimes people think, well, it's it's the thing. And if this happens to you, well, then, you know, all this. But context and reference, frame of reference is is critical. It is and and support and being able to process it and and learn how to process it and where does it sit with you? You know, where does it anchor with you? I mean, it's just like 
some kid gets yelled at for not being, you know, doing a shooting the perfect basketball and another kid gets yelled at for not shooting a perfect basketball. One kid is mortified and will never pick up a basketball again and feels like anytime they won't risk ever again because they failed. And another kid's like, all right, well, I'm going to up my game and prove you wrong. So there's so like, even just using that example as like, the, the, the coach who was like trying to give critiquing about what to improve wasn't the bad guy, but that experience was very traumatic to one and inspiring to another. And I think that same thing applies here is that our sexual experiences can either heighten our uh, evolution or it can interfere in our evolution in a negative way. And our abilities yeah. to connect and bond and relate and to have pleasure and to who we see ourselves at and who we choose to be in relationships with, like all of those pieces. And again, it has everything to do with your reference point. And I wouldn't be as well balanced if I did not have the, the focal point of my household where sexuality was okay. And education was okay. And pleasure was okay. If I didn't have that piece of the puzzle, I wouldn't be who I am. I wouldn't be a holistic sexual wellness specialist. I wouldn't end up being sexually liberated and free. I would probably, you know, I would still be in therapy. And I probably um, would be moving from a very unhealthy, promiscuous, not from a place of empowerment around my sexuality. It's only because of that framework. It's only yeah. because of that framework that I had a different direction and my sexuality went in a different direction. Yeah, I, and I think that's uh, that's really key. I, I'm going to imagine that there's people and parents who are struggling to figure out when. When is the time that I start saying these things? I don't want to be too late. I don't want to be too early. I don't want to interfere with their natural course. Um, so what do I say? When do I say it? Um, and then there's also another subset of people who are looking for like, well, this happened to me. And since that happened to you, then and you have those feelings, you know, I should too. And this scares me. This scares me a lot when people rely on other. It's great to have a framework and a, like a sense of, you know, where everybody is at. But I'm concerned when people adopt other people's stories and feelings in place of their own because it's like well that happened to you and that happened to me and you feel like this so I should too yeah and that's a lot of that going on in your practice well there's lots of there's lots of comparison I mean comparison is a piece of it's an epidemic in our whole society in all areas it doesn't really matter where we're where we are always measuring ourselves based on where we, somebody else is like that's that's kind of the the programming in North America anyways the programming in North America at a very young age of like we want to be in competition like why can't you be more like Susie like that programming is deeply rooted why can't you be more like your sister or why can't you be more like your brother or why can't you be more like like why can't you be more like is an imprinted peace in our culture. So there is always going to be that comparison piece. So one of the things I hear the most in my practice is when people tell me about their trauma, they're like, but it's not that bad. 
it's not as bad as so-and-so's. It's more like it's the opposite. It's a, in my world, it's a typical like a, a sort of like, I'm going to downplay my experience because it's not as bad as so-and-so's experience. As a coping mechanism. Well, as a coping mechanism, but also as, yeah, no one wants to admit that their experiences had a negative effect on their lives and it really sucks. Like no one wants to admit that. Like nobody wants to admit that. So we find all sorts of ways to be like, oh, yeah. So, you know, I was raped, but it wasn't really a big deal. Like we, we do, we really want to downplay that because, oh, my friend had a way worse experience than me. So therefore, like, we don't really need to look at it. It's like a way to not have to like really own it, look at it and yeah. acknowledge it. Self-preservation. It's a self-preservation tactic. Right. Right. But I mean, there's also something about relativity. Like, you know, sometimes my kids complain about this or that. And I will say, well, you know, there's people in this world that, especially when it comes to like food. There's people in this world who don't have any food. So you should be grateful for what you have. But that starts the imprinting. Because right? Well, I mean, it's... Because there's a piece of rat that, that starts the imprinting because it's like negating the person's experience, right? That's the thing is like, like what you're saying is like, we don't want to compare to other people and we don't want to say, well, that happened to you. And so therefore it should have happened to me and it didn't happen yeah. to me, but I feel bad. So I should have that happen to me is because we are told and taught in many different ways all over the place around our experience needs to be devalued. So whether it's like, I'm cold and somebody's like, it's hot out. It's like, I'm not acknowledging your experience. You know, I feel shitty and I'm not, I might be a brat in that moment and having a tantrum about, I don't have the best whatever. And yet there's people in the world who have nothing. And so when we say that, which is true, like it's a true statement. Because we want them to come to this realization that you're not self, don't be so self-absorbed and think about others and those experiences and come to a place of gratitude. But inadvertently, we are teaching people that their experience, whatever it is, is not valid. That's true. And so so that's the hard part of navigating that piece is being like, I hear what you're saying. And maybe we can look at it from a different perspective. Right. I, I validate yeah. that this really sucks for you right now. Yeah. And let's look at some other possibilities. Yeah. And it's kind of like, you can't change what you don't acknowledge. No. This is a, like rule number one in the Alcoholics Anonymous, I think, uh, or one of those uh, tenants. Yeah, it really is true. Until you acknowledge it, there's no way to. Yeah, if you keep downplaying your stuff, then yeah, it's going to just keep going on and on. Yeah. So I think that's the. I think the moral of this conversation is that whatever you experienced, and however that inter it interacted with you, is valid. It doesn't yes, matter. And we need to acknowledge it, and we need to Not acknowledge publicly it. to ourselves. To ourselves, exactly. Yeah. We don't like. It doesn't matter. It's not right or wrong. It's not good or bad. It's part of who, what you experienced in the world. And it's valid, whatever that experience was. So whether it was 
me laughing at the guy who is whacking off with a thing on his head or the, you know, the girl whose experience was very traumatic for her, that both of us, that was our experience. And not one handled it better than the other. It just, and not one was better than the, or worse than each other. It's just like, that was our experience based on the experiences thus far of how we interpreted the data. That was through our filters of that data collection. And so I think that's the biggest piece, if anything, is for us to acknowledge that whatever you experience is valid, the key is to understand what are your filters. That's more important. Mm. Like, what are you taking in those experiences through those filters to interpret the experience? And are those filters one, they are what they are when you were younger, but are those, yeah. those filters now still in place and do they serve the best version of yourself? Exactly, exactly. Because I do, I strongly believe, and I'm sure you do as well, um, sex does not stay in the bedroom. Your, your sexual experiences and your sexuality comes with you everywhere you go. Um, that's why we have, you know, issues with uh, people and sex in the workplace and business right now. Um, hence my first book. And then also these experiences in the early days, they, they're, they're coming with you. And I think it's, I think it's really valuable if people take a few moments to look back and reflect and think about it um, and see, you know, what was the context and see what are their filters and then see what they can do about that if there's anything to do. Yeah, because there may never be anything to do with it. Like, this is the thing is that it's like kind of like your conversation. Like, uh, acknowledgement is like the biggest just, thing you can yeah, do. You just acknowledge it and see if it's now moving fast forward into your current life. Is any of those filters still playing out that is interfering in your ability to bond, have intimacy, love, and have great epic sex? And if the answer is yes, that there's an interfere, then that's when we're like, okay, we need to look at our filters and we need to look at the source and we may need to heal some wounds that might've happened. Then that's the thing. But if the answer comes back is yes, I'm capable of bonding. Yes, I'm okay in intimacy. Yes, I'm okay with love. And yes, I'm okay with having fucking epic, epic sex. Then you're good. It doesn't really mm -hmm. matter. <laughs> however you've managed to integrate those experiences in and feel good about them then you're good then and if the answer is i'm not sure or no then please book an appointment with gaia and sort that out and sort then we can and we can sort that shit out and then you can so then you know you can say yes 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 and yes to those answer those questions yes we want full yeses three at a minimum yes <laughs> yes and yes <laughs> so love, yeah love anything else that you want did you feel like do you feel like you got the data and the information like, I feel like we got unless there's anything else that you feel like we've left out I I think this was um very useful for everyone because I don't think this is talked about this is another early experience of of you know sexual interference is not discussed yeah so one thing I want to make sure is left with is that we are not vilifying sexuality. So that's a piece that I really want to make sure that even if 
for example, you happen to walk in on your parents having sex and they didn't handle it well and they yelled at you. And then you're like, there's no way that anybody can ever see me having sex. Um, and that's how that anchored inside you because it was a traumatic experience. I don't want us to vilify. And then if you walked in on your parents and then there was an imprinting that happened in that moment, which is like, you know, uh, adults are funny looking when they have sex or you walked in and you're like, oops, and it didn't affect you at all. There's no right way that that experience is supposed to affect you. It just affected you however it affected you. Yeah. And so we want to make sure that when we're doing that, looking back on the experience, that we really just acknowledge the reality of that experience and no judgment attached to it, whether I did it right or I did it wrong, or it's their fault or it's my fault or like any yeah. of those pieces, because I mean, then, we are flawed, right? We are flawed human yeah. beings. We are all flawed. Yeah. And so there's that piece around not wanting to place blame, but just seeing it for what it is. How did it affect us? And is it still affecting us in a negative way? That's not what we want to be able to say yeses to those things that we just talked about. Then that's where we might need to dissect it. But otherwise, I really think that's the most important piece. Like as soon as we start to look back on things, I want you to make sure that you're looking at it from a, a perspective of acceptance not a yes. perspective of judgment or blaming. Yeah, exactly. Cause that won't get you to a solution. No. Yeah, that's right. And you may Beautiful. not even need a solution. There may not even be, there's like, we don't have, it doesn't mean that there's a problem. Right. Yes. Is what it is sometimes. And I think that's the biggest piece that when we're doing self-awareness and self-reflection is that we're looking at that there was a problem or that we're, we're something was wrong instead of just being like, it does, so then sometimes we seek out things that may not have even been a thing. So yes. Yes. let's not create more drama where we don't yeah. need to. And just let's, if we got enough in living in the life that, in the world that we do. So let's mm -hmm. just look at things as is from a place of acceptance. And then it. event, and then take a moment to process, is it affecting me in a negative way today? Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you okay. so much, Kaya. You're welcome. This is wonderful. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You're welcome. You're welcome. Okay. So audience, thank you for hanging out with us. I hope this was really insightful. I hope this brought uh, a new insight into getting to know me a little bit better. Um, I know I didn't go into great levels of detail, but I don't feel like we needed to go into great levels of detail. I don't want to traumatize you with my trauma. Um, however, if you got triggered at any point of this conversation, please reach out to me so that we can help to course correct in whatever way that we need. And I'm super proud of you for being awesome. If you want to learn more, visit me at GaiaMorissette.com and you can find out all the ways that I can support you. Have a great day. Until next time.